The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Jesus Christ changes lives. And uh, this morning, we are reflecting. Some of us uh, have just gotten the news this morning that one of the missionaries that we've supported for many, many years, Herod Wolfhart, has gone to be with the Lord. And it, to know his story is to, to know the transforming power of Christ's uh, work in someone's life. We'll, we'll tell more of his story next week, perhaps. But he was a missionary um, in South Africa and Rwanda and places where there's a lot of uh, racial division and brokenness. And, and it's, a, it's an amazing story of how God took someone who was essentially a, a racist neo-Nazi, transformed his life as he came to life in Christ and used him as an agent of reconciliation in some of the most divided parts of the world. And, and that's what he has spent his lifetime doing. And so, so we, we're going to miss him, but we're going to see him again. And, and God has, that's just what God does. Christ changes lives. People are not the same when they come into the presence of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 2, where we are this morning, that's what we've been seeing over the last couple weeks. When people come into his presence, something happens. You cannot have a casual response to Jesus. You can't. Because it comes down to this. Jesus came not claiming just to be a healer or a prophet. He claimed, claimed to be God incarnate. To be God in the flesh, coming and being among humanity. I, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. You've all heard this before, probably. Uh, if you've read Mere Christianity, you read it there. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing, though, that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, if you're, you're following the logic of, of Lewis's argument, you, you might say there's a fourth option. Perhaps we can just throw out the concept of Jesus altogether. Maybe he, he never actually existed. But, but to do that would be to, t to put your faith in a, a historical narrative that is, is very, very difficult to justify. We have eyewitness accounts, and that's what we, we read in Mark chapter 2, eyewitness accounts of Jesus, a historical figure who is not like any other person that ever lived, coming and being among people, and, and they see the things that he does, and they hear the words that he say, says, and here the apostle Peter is recording through John Mark what Jesus did. Jesus came and he claimed to be able to forgive sinners. It's one thing to forgive someone who, who has sinned against you, who has wronged you. But, but who can forgive those sins that aren't against anyone in particular, that are, that are sins against God? Who can forgive that? Only God. And here Jesus comes and he claims to be able to do that. That is quite the claim. That he 
has the power of God to forgive sins. And so what we see is, is that as he comes ministering and preaching and healing and teaching and, and forgiving sins, sinners are flocking to Jesus and, and the self-righteous and the religious are, are holding Jesus at a distance. They're scrutinizing Jesus. They're skeptical of Jesus. They're criticizing Jesus. And so you, we see this. There's no casual response to Jesus. He's polarizing. You love him, you want to be around him, you want to be close to him, or you hate him, you despise him, and you want to prove that he is a fraud or something worse. And that's what we'll see in this passage. Over the last couple weeks, what we've seen is Jesus has the power to, with a word, cast out demons from people. These unclean spirits come, come screaming out of people. He's healed the sick and the broken. Last week, we saw some, some amazing stories. We looked at two in particular where Jesus goes to a leper. This person who has this disease all over their body and hasn't been touched by anyone in years, and Jesus reaches out and touches him. We saw him then teaching in a house where some friends bring a paralytic to Jesus, and they break a hole through the roof and lower their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and Jesus looks upon him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then goes on to say, so that all you gathered here may know that I have the power to forgive sins, the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And he heals a paralyzed man. That's where we left off in, in Mark 2 last week. And as, I, as we, we left off, we kind of had to, to rush to a finish, but there's, there's so much more to reflect on in, in that little passage. The more important thing in that paralyzed man's life was not actually that his legs then began to work. It was that his sins could be forgiven. He could be washed and made clean. And, and I received a, a letter early in the week, and I won't go into the details because I don't want to reveal details that are not mine to give. But it was a letter uh, from someone just expressing how they, they went through a, a horrible illness and how they were grateful for it. Grateful for it because in, in a season of being prodigal, of not walking with the Lord, this illness brought them to the feet of Jesus. What if... Our hardships, our brokenness, our paralysis are actually some of the best things that ever happened to us. I, I tell you, they can be if they bring us to the feet of Jesus. I, I have to imagine this paralyzed man would have reflected on his life and said, thank God that my legs didn't work so that my friends on this crazy day could break through a roof and bring me to Jesus, to forgiveness of sins. It's an amazing thing. Because what we see is that Jesus didn't come primarily to, to heal those who are physically broken. He came in love to forgive the absolute worst among us of our sins. And that's good news, isn't it? God is so, so gracious. And if there's one thing I want you to remember as we look at the remainder of Mark 2 today, I want you to, to just walk away with this one simple concept. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Here in this passage, we get to see this in perfect clarity. We're going to see three things. We're going to see this guy Levi get converted, the conversion of Levi. We're going to see the criticism that Jesus gets from the self-righteous, the, the elites, the holy people. And three, we're going to receive then from this passage a commission, a commission for all believers. So, so notice these three things, conversion, criticism, and commission. Jesus loves his, his creation so much. He loves you so much that he left the presence of angels. He came to dwell among us to be in the place of sinners. To be surrounded by people who, who are not anywhere worthy of being in the presence of holy, almighty God. And yet he came. He entered the culture of earth out of the culture of heaven. And he came as a missionary. And he came as Lord. Now, I want you to be careful. He didn't come to legitimize sin. 
He didn't come to, to tell people that they should remain living the way that they were living. No. But he did come to love people. And he did come to build relationships with people who were far, far away from God. And he was on a mission to draw sinners near, to change their lives, and to forgive sin. And so we can learn from this. What we'll see in this passage is that so often our mission as believers, as followers of Jesus, who do the kinds of things he does, it's not to go across the world to the other side of the world and minister there, although we believe in that and we support that. But what we see is that Jesus takes the initiative to simply walk across a street to love the next person up, the next person in front of him. And that is something that all of us can do. So here we see it, the conversion of Levi. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 13. It says, he went out again beside the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know if we have a, a map that we could fire up, but basically the Sea of Galilee is this, this area in the north of Israel where Jesus did most of his ministry. He would go to these towns surrounding this area, Capernaum, Galilee, Nazareth, which was actually more in, in the hill country, and he would minister all around this region up there in the north. Occasionally, he goes down to the south. He goes to Jerusalem, especially around the Sabbath. But this is kind of ministry home base. And so he's here a lot. But it's gotten so crazy, so many crowds are coming to him that he can't really go any, into any particular town. So here he is beside the sea, out by the water. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Great crowds have begun to follow him, both the desperately needy and those that, that don't like Jesus, but are just curious about what he's all about. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. So, so having preached, Jesus, not, not just wanting to stay among the church crowd, he goes out. He goes out. That's a picture for us, too. He begins to walk away from the crowd, and there on the side of the road, in the village of Capernaum, at the edge of town, he sees this man, Levi, sitting in a booth collecting taxes. Who here loves taxes? Anyone? Why are any of you raising your hands? <laughs> I don't get that. Okay. There were a couple hands that went up. They're like, yeah, I love them. Why not? Um, most of us don't. Most of us don't love taxes. And, and so that's understandable, I think. And in Jesus' day, some 2,000 years ago, uh, it wasn't any different. People hated tax collectors. They despised them, and in terms of their reputation, these were some of the worst of the worst people. In Jesus' day, in Palestine, what these tax collectors would be, would, they'd be people hired by the Roman government. Israel had been occupied by Rome. Rome had set up government, and, and they had appointed these tax collectors who were locals. They didn't want to send their own people there. So what they would do is they would hire local Jewish people uh, who would submit bids to join the service of the occupying Roman government and, and to serve as tax collectors. And if they were the, the highest bidder, they would get to open a tax franchise uh, similar to McDonald's or, or Chick-fil-A, where they'd take your money and then they'd say, my pleasure, after doing so. And, and so... so this was a competitive business. People would buy in, but they were buying in to be servants of this oppressive regime of Rome. And so these people who were subjecting the people of God to the rule of Gentiles were despised. And it wasn't just because of, of what they had signed on to do. It was the way they went about it. They were known for intimidation, corruption, mafia-style extortion. And so these tax men would not be just seen as a nuisance. They would be something far, far worse. These were renegades. These were traitors. These were hateful, spiteful people. There was one Roman writer who uh, wrote that he once saw a monument to an honest tax collector. 
if you understand that, it's an honest tax collector is so rare that if you are that guy, you get a statue built in your honor. That was the environment. And so there were typical taxes. What, what were the taxes for? It was like income taxes like there are for us today. There were taxes for crops and animals. There were taxes called poll taxes, which were basically if you're living and breathing for existing, you owe a tax. Uh, there were other taxes that were, were burdensome but ordinary. Okay, these were the, the normal kind of taxes that, that we're used to. You can't tax someone beyond that percentage of income tax. And yet by, at the edge of the city, in his booth, Levi and his co-workers would specialize in different kinds of taxes, less well-defined taxes, specifically duties, sales tax, import and export taxes, duties for using the roads, wagon taxes, wheel taxes, animal taxes, boat taxes. They would even uh, give you a tax for every wheel on your wagon. So you would not be driving 18-wheelers past the tax booth. And so the way this business would work is the Roman government would, would require a certain amount, and as long as you satisfy that amount as a tax collector, you were good to go. Anything else above that, on top of that, you could keep as your profit margin, which is a pretty messed up system, isn't it? And so here, at the edge of Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee, Levi would be an expert in ripping people off. And as a result, he would become very wealthy and very despised. People hate this guy. And it's not, these aren't big towns. You have to understand, people in these, these areas, they know each other. The disciples, these fishermen who had been small business owners, essentially, they would know Levi. They would know what he's like. They would avoid Levi at all costs. He would know them. And he would have heard about this, this rabbi, Jesus, coming through the area. And he would have heard that Jesus has come to forgive sinners. I wonder what he began to think of this Jesus as he saw the crowds moving past his booth, as he saw the way that others responded to Jesus and flocked toward him. I want you to put yourself in the position of Levi. No one willingly comes to your booth. No one wants to be near you. And when you're honest with yourself, when you're laying in bed at night alone, you know the depths of your own depravity. You know how you've ripped off desperate people. You know how you've exhorted, extorted those around you. And you know that everyone hates you. And every day you tell yourself, I don't care. But when the reality sets in and you begin to, to really see the depths of what you're doing, I, I, I have to think that, that Levi was in chains. He wasn't welcome in church. He wasn't allowed in the synagogue. He wasn't allowed to testify in court. He, he would have not had any reason to be noticed or thought of by Jesus. And yet he's heard the rumors. He's heard that Jesus touches lepers, that Jesus heals the sick and the crippled, that he even claims to forgive sins. And, and I wonder if it ever crossed Levi's mind. Could he forgive me? Could he forgive me? Surely not. Not me. If these good people hate me, Jesus must hate me even more. But wait, he's, he's walking toward me. He's walking this way. Suddenly, this man who has learned not to care what anyone thinks of him begins to feel his heart racing as this rabbi is walking toward him. Jesus is coming. Jesus walks to the window of his booth. And rather than shame, Levi looks up into the eyes of Jesus and he sees kindness. Instead of condemnation, he sees grace and he sees love. And Jesus speaks to him and, and only two words are enough for Levi. Jesus said to him, follow me. 
and he rose. Luke's gospel says, leaving everything, he followed him. Now, just a couple weeks ago, we saw Simon, we saw Andrew, Peter, uh, James, John do the same thing. They left behind their business, they left behind their fishing boats and their tackle, and they followed Jesus. And that's amazing. That's, that's great. But, but this is even more amazing to me because there are always fish to return to. You can always go back. But for Levi, on the other hand, when he walks away from this business, it'll be sold to the highest bidder. There is no turning back. His business will be sold off. He'll never be allowed back. He'll be distrusted or mistrusted by the Roman authority, and, and he can't go back. He's going to lose his business, his wealth, his status, his favor with the Romans. And, and yet, looking at his fortune, looking at his fortune and recognizing the chains that it has bound him in. He looks back, he looks at Jesus, and he determines there is no turning back. I'm going with him. I'm going with him. He turns his back to his old ways and he says, forsaking all, I trust him. Why? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is better than, than a, a shiny reputation. In all our victories, Jesus is better. In all our sorrows, Jesus is better. Through all temptations, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. And for Levi now, his song eternal is Jesus is better. Do you know that? Have you experienced the grace and the goodness of God the way Levi does? Levi, with just two words, knows that Jesus is so much better and he repents of everything to follow Jesus. Well, how did this happen? I want you to notice three things. Levi, number one, recognizes his need for a savior. Recognition. Do you know your need? Do you know your need for a savior? Secondly, Jesus pursues him with love and grace. Relationship. Third, Levi responds to Jesus and he leaves behind his life of sin and he follows Jesus. Repentance. And then what we see next is, is great. Luke's gospel says it this way. It says, Levi made him a great feast in his house. So the first thing Levi does is he comes to faith in Jesus. He, he says, Jesus says, follow me. And apparently Jesus just walks back to Levi's house, which is great. And Levi fires up the grill. He fires up the grill and he begins to invite all his low-life friends to a party. He is so excited that Jesus would love him, that Jesus would want to be with him, that he can't help but party. And so Jesus and the disciples come over and Levi's throwing a retirement party. He's going to do it big. He's, he's going to, to get all of his friends to be with Jesus. And he goes from being extremely greedy to extremely generous in an afternoon. Levi has experienced this great salvation and he can't help but want to bring others to Jesus. If Jesus loves him, Surely he can love his friends. Surely he can, can love his, his family, the tax collectors, the addicts, the outcasts, the irreligious. He wants them all to meet Jesus. Verse 15, and as he reclined at table, that's in Levi's house, that's Jesus reclining at table, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Reclined at table is kind of a, a funny phrase, but basically they're all, they're all laying with one arm down and the other arm eating. That's, that's kind of the way they would eat around the table. And here Jesus is, God Almighty, perfect Jesus. And he's surrounded by just the worst of the worst people. And he's having a great time, a great feast. Jesus is the guest of honor. And he is surrounded by the craziest bunch of people you've ever seen. And maybe you haven't even seen these kinds of people. Thieves, abusers, liars, 
sinners. And yet here in this context, as, as Levi brings all his friends in and they're with Jesus, Levi doesn't seem to be concerned that his, his friends might cuss in front of Jesus or, or might, might do the wrong things, might embarrass him with their poor table manners. He simply wants them to meet his Savior. And I've been reflecting on this a lot this week. I just marvel at the fact that Jesus can be around all kinds of people. And for some reason, when perfect Jesus is in their presence, they don't feel condemned. They don't feel ashamed. They feel drawn to him. I don't know exactly how Jesus does this, but I want that. I want that to be how my life is. In my neighborhood or in my life, when people find out that I'm a pastor... This isn't what happens. The first thing they do is they apologize for cussing five minutes earlier, and then they give me a record of their recent church attendance for some reason. <laughs> so I like, to, I like to keep that on the down low. I, I, I don't like to reveal that I'm a pastor right away. I like to keep that door open. But Jesus is different. How do we be like Jesus in this? How do we be the kind of person that can be sinless? Well, we can't. But walk in holiness, walk in righteousness, walk in uprightness toward God, and yet at the same time be a welcome presence among those that don't know him. That's what I want. And here Jesus goes to a party. Do you know that throwing parties can be great ministry? If you're excited about, about sharing Jesus, here's something you can do. Follow Levi's example. Throw open your doors. Be generous. Provide an awesome feast. Open your lives to the people around you. Some of you have, have great houses, great property, great, great food in your fridge. Use it to the glory of God to love people, to love people around you and learn to be okay with a little bit of mess. One of our elders, uh, he, every Halloween, you know, mixed emotions about Halloween, but Mike and Deb, what they, they do is they determine that it is an opportunity for them to connect with and love their neighbors. So they, before everyone goes out doing their thing, they open up their home for a chili uh, cook-off and everyone gets to eat chili and be together. And this is just a place for them to connect with their neighbors and to love them and to open up some relationship, Jesus-style, with all kinds of people. I think this is a beautiful picture because, let me tell you, chili is messy. It is. And yet, this is such a great way when we open our doors, open our lives to connect with people uh, through food and fellowship that might never come into the doors of a church. You know, when we come together on Sundays, we hope you'll bring your friends here, and we'll talk about that in a minute. We hope that they'll hear the gospel here and respond and follow Jesus. We hope that'll happen. But more likely, and more importantly, what we do is we come together to celebrate Jesus, and you are then to be sent out as missionaries in your communities, in your schools, in your soccer fields, or wherever you are, to represent Jesus in those places. People need Jesus, and you have him. You know him. Next, we see the criticism of the self-righteous, and this is going to be a tendency uh, in our hearts, even if we're not careful. It says, here that the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus is in the presence of a bunch of people who would probably never be welcome in a church. At least they wouldn't feel that welcome in a church. They'd feel a little bit out of place. And these religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're, I, I don't know what they're doing, watching from across the street or peering through the window or something. It's pretty weird, right? And they, they see this party going on and they begin to comment, not directly, directly to Jesus, but to his disciples. Now, who are scribes and Pharisees? These are the religious top of the top. 
The scribe in each village would be the one responsible for copying down the scriptures and, and teaching on the scriptures, and they would have been a big deal. They're, they're the local theologian, they're the, the seminary-educated expert, and then they would have had these Pharisees, which are ordinary people, lay people, but who were living by the standard of holiness that was, in their eyes, beyond everyone else. They're the good people. They're the special people. They're dutiful. They're religious, and they take it all very seriously. And so they follow their scribes, and, and they follow the law to a T, and in fact, follow a bunch of rules that are added onto the law so they can do it even better. And here's what would have characterized these holy men um, in villages like Capernaum. The first was isolation from sinners and their activities. To them, being in the presence of sinners was the same as sinning. They didn't want to be around them. Secondly, they were characterized by strict rule following. They would follow rules and create rules that were beyond the law. And thirdly, they were characterized by external perfectionism. External perfectionism. It didn't matter really what their hearts looked like. On the outside, if they had it all together, if they could portray themselves as holy, that was good enough. That's what they were going for. And, and, and we know people like that. Maybe our, our social media reflects that. These guys, these Pharisees, they would have had pristine Instagrams. You would see their family all put together. They'd have the best vacations. They'd be snapping shots of their, their Bible studies and posting them all the time. They would look really good external perfectionism. Now, now are, are any of these attitudes inherently sinful? Maybe a little bit. But I think these individuals are sincerely trying to follow God. They're trying to do something. They're trying to, to be close to God or at least honor God in some way. But the common thread that runs through all of this is, is religious pride. This attitude of I'm better than other people. And that's a big problem. As we read the New Testament, though, I think it can be so tempting to read the Scriptures and to scoff at these Pharisees, to say, they're the worst. Why are they like this? Why are, are they such a pain? Why are they so difficult? I would never be like that. And yet, as I read these passages, I just have to, to reflect on my own heart and ask myself, would I be more likely to be around that table with Jesus or on the outside looking in? And I think a lot of times the truth is I would be one of those on the outside looking in, not wanting to get too close to the mess, not wanting to risk my own comfort, my comfort zone. And so here, Jesus, knowing the thoughts and attitudes of the self-righteous onlookers, those that, that really think they're better than everyone else, verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, I love this, this is so good, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's tongue-in-cheek here with these Pharisees, but in some ways he's being kind to them. He's saying, you guys got it all together? Great. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for you. I'm here for those that know they need me. I'm here for those that know they're sick. And he has this really simple analogy. He, he, he doesn't condone sinful behavior. He doesn't excuse sin. He says, you know what? You're right. And I love that he doesn't try to, to defend the people around him. He doesn't try to make them look good. He says, yup, Levi and his friends, they're sick. But guess what? I'm a doctor. And I came for them. Is it unusual for a doctor to be surrounded by sick people? I guess now it is, telehealth and all that weird stuff, but... No, no, doctors are constantly around sick people. And Jesus is the great physician, and he came to bring hope 
to a dying world. Are these religious people sick too? Are they? Yes, absolutely. Are they in need of a doctor? Of course. The truth is we all are in this condition apart from Christ. We're all sinners by nature and choice. But the difference is that the people that Jesus is dining with and partying with, they know it. They recognize their need for a Savior. They're desperate for Jesus to come along and forgive them. And that's a very good place to start, to know your need. Is there hope for the hopeless sinner? Yes, absolutely, there is. Levi recognizes his need. He responds into relationship with Jesus. He repents of his life. He turns 180 degrees and moves toward God and away from his old life. And he is transformed. Jesus chooses him. Jesus chooses Levi. But not only does he choose Levi, but we learn from scriptures that Levi goes on to become Matthew. His name is changed. He becomes one of the 12, the closest followers of Jesus. And this tax collector is transformed uh, from, from this hated person to one of the authors of scripture, the gospel of Matthew. And I don't know if he got his nickname from Jesus or he gave it to himself, but what Matthew means is gift of God. Gift of God. He goes from being someone who's greedy and stealing from others to being a gift of God, and Matthew continues to be a gift of God to us through the word. He goes from thief to gift. Is there hope for Levi? Absolutely there is. Is there hope for the Pharisee? Thank God there is as well. We see that in, in the Apostle Paul, Saul, who goes from being a terrible Pharisee, a hater of Christians, an abuser of Christians, to be one of the, the greatest evangelists ever, to be one of the greatest people that lived as a representative of Jesus, God can transform even the self-righteous. And so from this, as we come to a conclusion, I want to give you the commission for us, the commission for all believers, both that, those that recognize their self-righteousness and, and recognize their need for the grace of Jesus. The answer is the same. He says, follow me. Follow me. And so for us to follow Jesus is to live like Jesus. It's to do the things that Jesus did. Are you a doctor? No, you're not a doctor. But you can bring people to the feet of the great physician. You can be part of bringing others into relationship with Jesus. How do we do this? I want to give you three suggestions. Number one, intercede. Intercede. Pray. Pray for the people that God has placed in your life, particularly those family members and friends that don't know the Lord. Intercede. We talked about this last week. Prayer makes such a difference. I've seen God transform the lives of, of the people that, that we pray for consistently. Number two, invest. Invest. Find ways to practically serve your friends who, who don't go to church, who don't know the Lord. I don't know what that looks like for you, but it's inconveniencing yourself intentionally to love people practically. That might mean opening up your wallet to buy someone a meal. It might mean shoveling a driveway when it snows for a neighbor, lending your car, uh, opening up your schedule, your wallet, your life to love people and to be with people. Some of us are just absolutely too busy, especially with church stuff, to be able to spend time with people who don't yet know Jesus. And that's unacceptable. To follow Jesus is to, to do what Jesus does. To love people who don't yet know him. Intercede, invest, and lastly, invite invite. This church does not exist to be a country club. This is a, a holy hospital for sick people, a place for people that are broken to find healing in the great physician. And, and maybe even this week would be a time for you to, to think about those people that you've been interceding for, that you've been investing in to invite them into something more. Can I tell you a secret? I'm not even talking about inviting them to church. You can do that. That's wonderful. And I, I hope you do that. But what I'm talking about really is inviting your friends, family, neighbors, into fellowship. 
into your home, into times of prayer, into real life-giving conversation. And I'm not promising it will be easy. In fact, it will probably be pretty inconvenient and uncomfortable at times to live like this, to follow Jesus in this way. But, but I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again. What a joy it would be if that couch in your living room became not just a place where you wind down and watch Netflix at the end of the day. What if it was a place where people got saved? What if that table that you eat at became a place where, where people's eternities are changed as they experience love and fellowship and relationship? What if your driveway or your parking lot became a place of prayer where people could receive encouragement and support? And what if that empty seat next to you this morning became the place where someone's eternity was changed from death to life as they were introduced to Jesus Christ? Intercede, invest, invite. If the band could come up, we as Christians have been commissioned by Jesus to carry out his mission. That doesn't necessarily mean traveling uh, the world to a foreign land. Most often, being on mission for Jesus means to live for Jesus and to love like Jesus right where you are. Here's a, a scripture I want to conclude with. Jesus says this. He says, just as the Father is sending me, I'm sending you. And then in Acts 26, 17, it says, I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would embolden us to be your witnesses, to love people who are not like us, Lord, and actually to love people who are like us. We are desperately in need of your, your grace, Lord, and we thank you that, that by belief in you, we've received grace. We've received favor that we didn't merit. Lord, Levi's story is just like ours. When we were lost and broken and in chains and following our own ways, you came to us and said, follow me. Lord, I pray that you would use us mightily to, to be like you to be bold, to walk across a street and to tell people about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. God, we cannot do this in our own strength. We don't even know what to say. We don't have the words. We don't have the opportunities. Yet we ask you to help us. We ask your spirit to go before us and to empower us. And Lord, we thank you that you haven't just saved us from something. You've saved us for something. And we thank you that we get to join you in your mission today. In Jesus' name, amen.